Welcome to Medicine the Truth, one of the four weekly Fixing Healthcare podcast series. I'm Jeremy Kaur, host of the Popular New Books and Medicine podcast and CEO at Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert led the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He's a healthcare contributor at Forbes.com, best-selling author and professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business. His book, Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients, continues to receive industry-wide praise. All profits will be donated to Doctors Without Borders. For more information on a broad range of medical topics, you can visit his website, robertpearlmd.com. Robbie, listeners are enjoying this blend of the latest in medicine combined with ongoing updates in COVID-19. But given how many general health care stories there are, let's start out with a couple of them. Jeremy, on March 13th, 2020, then-President Donald Trump issued a national emergency proclamation. It authorized the Secretary of Health and Human Services, which includes both Medicare and Medicaid, to temporarily waive or modify various federal restrictions for the duration of the public health emergency created by the COVID-19 outbreak. This month, President Biden signed a resolution ending the national emergency a month before it was due to expire. The legislation officially ending the pandemic passed in both the House and the Senate. You might imagine that the end to a pandemic emergency would be a cause for celebration and parades but instead, it hardly garnered attention and failed to include any formal White House celebration. As we said on the Coronavirus The Truth podcast that we were doing at the time, at the start of 2023, the American public decided that the panic and the pandemic was behind us. Few Americans seemed to care very much what public health elected officials thought. After 1,124 days of national emergency, the conclusion was made official simply by a notice from the White House that President Biden had signed the resolution. A second important action, and in this case, one taken by the FDA, was the regulatory agency's decision to allow local pharmacies to sell Narcan the opioid overdose reversal medication, and they could sell it over the counter. The drug is a nasal spray that can be administered by a friend or family member to someone who has stopped breathing, and within seconds restores them to life. This is the first drug with this massive medical impact to be approved for sale without a prescription. At the same time, however, with a retail price likely to be over $100 for two doses, which is what's required following an overdose. It remains to be seen whether the medication will be purchased in advance of a tragedy by the people who are addicted or whether the cost will be prohibitive even for friends and family members worried about such a life-threatening problem happening. In general, health insurance coverage doesn't cover over-the-counter medications and one in five people who are at risk of overdosing are uninsured. Jeremy, you're an historian. When I think of conflicts that ended poorly for the U.S., Vietnam, Iraq, the conclusions of these wars were treated similar to how the end of the COVID-19 emergency declaration was handled. Do you think the lack of enthusiasm 
shown by how the government managed the official conclusion of the pandemic reflected a sense of failure or just an acknowledgement that Americans put the pandemic in the rearview mirror months earlier? Robbie, I think it's a combination of both. I think most Americans, for lack of a better word, have been over the pandemic for quite some time. I also think the federal government has to understand the confusing messaging around the pandemic, COVID vaccines mandates, uh, damage to the economy from how the pandemic was handled, and more has caused quite a bit of distrust, angst, and an overall lack of caring in the government's public health experts and their advice. If I'm being totally honest, I think it will take perhaps even an entire generation for that trust in public health officials to return. And as I said, I think the government's aware of this news, and it was a footnote for that reason. What else is happening of interest in healthcare? Jeremy, we're seeing an interesting political and sociological pattern repeating, similar to when Medicare was first implemented. For over a decade, this government-funded medical coverage for seniors remained contentious with strong opposition and sharp partisan antagonism between Democrats and Republicans. Then after the decade, as people became accustomed to the benefit and voters were pleased with the program, it evolved from a point of contention to a benefit that both parties now embrace and battle to protect. We're now seeing the same trajectory for the Affordable Care Act, that's often called Obamacare. As an example, a decade ago, North Carolina's Republican elected officials described the law as dangerous, and they refused to take federal money to expand coverage to individuals earning more than the poverty level, which is where Medicaid is in every state in this country, but not enough to pay for private coverage for the people who make more than the poverty level but not enough to buy their own insurance. This month, the state government passed legislation mandating the expansion, and they did so by a huge margin, 87 to 24 in the state house, 44 to two in the state Senate. That makes 40 states that have now expanded Medicaid coverage to families earning more than the poverty level, which is approximately $30,000 for a family of four, but less than 133,000 level described in the Affordable Care Act, or about $40,000, for which expansion is 90% covered federally, with the remainder being the responsibility of the local state. Passage in North Carolina leaves only 10 states with restricted coverage, but they do include Texas and Florida, which obviously have large populations. Continued expansion of the Affordable Care Act Republican-dominated states, that's incredible. Remember, in 2017, the entire ACA came within one vote, and that was of the late Senator John McCain, of being repealed. The impact of states refusing to take federal money to expand coverage, that's massive. Across the country, three-quarters of the rural hospital closures have happened in states that didn't accept Medicaid expansion. And it appears that massive unhappiness in the rural areas of North Carolina is what led to the revolution to embrace the program more than a decade after its passage. Robbie, any fun stories in healthcare these days? Sure, Jeremy. First, like you, I'm a sports enthusiast. And with the NBA and the NHL playoffs beginning, 
I must admit to a modicum of guilt for how much time I spend reading about and analyzing each day's games. I can't tell you that doing so is the best use of my time, but it appears that attending live sporting events, as you do with Iowa football, improves people's well-being and reduces their feeling of loneliness. This research was done in England, included over 7,000 adults. As part of the total survey, questions were asked of the participants whether they attended live sporting events, which included free amateur matches and professional Premier League soccer games. Of course, in research, it's hard to separate causation from correlation, but the magnitude of positive impact that came from attending live events, it was tremendous. The study found that going to live sporting events increased people's sense that, quotes, life is worthwhile significantly. The magnitude of the difference between those who attended and didn't attend was equivalent to the improvement in people's lives from getting a job. Of course, I do wonder if there's a difference if the teams you should support most often win rather than lose. I've read other research that documented the negative consequences on people Monday morning after their favorite NFL team was defeated the day before. That research wasn't on attending in person, but simply included watching the game at home and reading about it in social media. Who knows? Maybe just being in the stadium with all those people is a way to not feel lonely. Whatever it is, sporting events seem to be positive in our lives. Robbie, how about another fun story? Jeremy, I'm not sure if I'd call this a fun story, but it is positive. For listeners who know they should take exercise more seriously, but worry about how much time it can take each day, there's new data for the Journal of the AMA that says they shouldn't worry. Just get out a couple of times a week. This new study of 3,101 adults found that 8,000 steps taken even one or two days a week significantly lowered people's risk of dying up to a decade later. This newest recommendation is dramatically less than what we thought in the past when we assumed people had to take 10,000 steps five days a week. Of course, exercising more often than one to two days a week is better. But combining one weekend day with one weekend day, that's something most people can build into their week. And walking 8,000 steps, that's about four miles for the typical person. And we'll assume that they walk at a leisurely pace. It's about an hour and a half. So twice a week, we're only talking about three hours per week as the commitment Maybe all of our listeners can make sure that they reach that level so that they live a longer and healthier life. Robbie, as usual, what's this episode's newest piece of information relative to kids? Jeremy, unfortunately, when it comes to kids and the trend in mortality rates in the United States, the newest numbers, they're not very good. Recently released data on gun deaths, killing kids, it's shocking. There's been a 50% increase over the past couple of years. The number of children and teens who die each year from gun violence is now nearly double what it was a decade ago. In 2021, the most recently data released showed 
more children and teens were killed by gunshots than in any year this century. And the finding for kids isn't isolated. The increase in mortality was part of a bigger picture of loss of life from guns. Over the same two years of the study on kids, there was a total of 48,830 gun deaths in the United States, which is up 23% from the couple of years before. The combination of increased mortality from guns with higher numbers of drug overdoses and the deaths from COVID-19 drove American life expectancy downward, setting the U.S. back to where longevity levels were two full decades ago. And it's as much as five years below other industrialized country. And the biggest difference between us and these other wealthy nations is how much higher the mortality is among younger individuals in the United States compared to these other countries. Overall, one in 25 kids who are in kindergarten today won't live to the age of 40. And I find that a shocking statistic. Robert, you've talked about the negative impact bureaucratic tasks like prior authorization have on doctors and their professional satisfaction. A listener wants to know if any progress is being made. Jeremy, insurers recognize the problems that prior authorization requirements create, both in delaying medical care and driving sky high the rates of doctor burnout. And they're taking steps to reduce the requirements. I don't know if the changes that are now planned reflect the physician dissatisfaction as much as patient unhappiness and growing interest by state regulators to restrict the practice of prior authorization. But either way, I think the changes are positive. United Healthcare, the nation's largest insurer, said it would remove many of the procedures and medical devices from its list of services and products that require prior authorization. And it plans to eliminate even more items for so-called gold card doctors and hospitals. These are ones whose prior requests were rarely denied. And other insurers, Cigna and Aetna, they're planning to follow United Healthcare's lead. It's estimated that the added cost to insurers of this approach will be small. We'll know much more when the details are provided and we can see how many procedures and services will be included in this carve-out. The listener asked about the current debate relative to whether doctors treating seniors enrolled in Medicare Advantage are getting paid too much. What's happening? Jeremy, this is very complex. It's a highly contentious area of healthcare, and I'll try to unpack it, but it'll take a couple of steps. First, for the listeners wanting to understand the issue. When people turn 65, they become eligible for Medicare, and they have to choose which of two alternative options to select. They can enroll in what's called traditional Medicare. This is a fee-for-service program that allows them to see any physician and be cared for in any hospital. And then there's Medicare Advantage, which is a capitated program, meaning that rather than doctors and hospitals being reimbursed based on the volume of procedures they do and the number of visits they schedule, they are paid based on the age of the patients and the diseases they have, which will acquire treatment. 
decapitated approach encourages preventive services and the avoidance of complications like heart attacks, strokes, and cancer from chronic diseases. And it offers other benefits to enrollees like dental and vision services. These added services is why Medicare Advantage that was introduced 30 years after traditional Medicare, and you may remember that traditional Medicare was first passed in the 1960s, where the Medicare Advantage program is rapidly growing in popularity and is predicted to surpass traditional Medicare in the percentage of enrollees next year. The controversy the listener is asking about reflects the difference in payment methodology inside the Medicare Advantage program. Let me explain. In order to appropriately reimburse doctors who take accountability for the sickest of patients, a risk calculation needs to be made of how likely a given individual is to require medical care the next year. And this disagreement between the supporters and critics of Medicare Advantage as to which illnesses and medical problems should be included. On one hand, the programs participating in Medicare Advantage they point out that every medical problem that a patient has should be included since these problems are associated with the need for future medical treatment and higher costs. On the other hand, the critics say, if a problem isn't under active medical treatment, that it shouldn't be recognized or credited. And the debate goes to the question of whether the government is getting its money's worth from each of these two alternative programs. You might think it'd be easy to make the comparison between them, but it's not. As an example, if in Medicare Advantage, better prevention keeps people healthier and it leads to lower demand for medical care, costs will drop. Does this mean that doctors and hospitals who took the risk of the capitation should now be paid less since people are healthier? Or are they and should they be appropriately rewarded for their efforts? And if doctors identify medical issues and address chronic diseases that pose risk in the future for more heart attacks, strokes, and cancer, and they help patients to avoid these complications, should they be paid as much as doctors who ignore them and then bill for complex surgical interventions to reverse these life-threatening problems? How did this become such a hot issue and how is it being resolved? Jeremy, it became a big issue this year when Medicare, facing ever higher costs, decided to dramatically reduce Medicare Advantage payments. The initial plan was to decrease the dollars paid per patient compared to last year. An advisory group calculated that since doctors keep finding new medical issues that they will that will generate added payments to them above the base level, that reducing what is paid per patient will end up with a net increase per patient to the doctor of about 1%. But the doctors and hospitals who participate in Medicare Advantage calculated the payments differently. They thought they were likely to receive significant reductions. What followed was a combination of intense lobbying by insurers who offered Medicare Advantage programs and by physicians groups who provided the care and they showed that those programs that cared for the sickest enrollees, particularly in socioeconomically challenged areas, they'd be really hit hard and likely unable to continue to provide 
the best medical care going forward. And this led the government to back off part way. The end result is that the reductions will be put in place over three years, not one. And that will mean a projected total increase in payment per employee next year. It's estimated to be around 3% rather than 1%, far less than supporters believe appropriate, but far more than critics had hoped. Robbie, how will these changes impact seniors when the Medicare trust fund becomes unable to pay all of its bills? Jeremy, the calculation on when the Medicare trust fund will go broke changes continually as the cost of medical care rises and falls. Starting in 2003, 20 years ago, the cost of the Medicare program has exceeded revenue received each year. Although the magnitude of the gap has varied from year to year. What's been recognized since that time is that at some point, the government will have paid out more than it received from people. That doesn't mean that care wouldn't be partially provided by the revenues that continue to be received, or it could be increased by congressional action. It just means that without added revenue beyond what people pay into Medicare at work each year, the fund can't pay for everything it does today without some change, either in who's eligible to enroll or how much it pays. The newest calculation, which includes the reduction we just talked about, will allow the Medicare fund to stay viable for an additional three years beyond that which we thought last year. As a result, if these numbers hold, the U.S. won't have to make draconian cuts until 2031, rather than seeing the fund run out of money in 2028. In a macabre way, experts have noted that part of the three-year added longevity to the trust fund is from COVID-19. I know that sounds strange, but as you remember, the pandemic hit those individuals who were the oldest and sickest, and many of them died. As such, Medicare won't have to continue to pay for their medical care that they definitely would have needed had they survived the pandemic for potentially decades. As you may remember from President Biden's State of the Union, there remain a few members of Congress who do publicly favor cutbacks in Medicaid coverage to decrease spending and reduce the magnitude of the national debt. But the Medicare program is so positively viewed by voters at the chance of Congress authorizing these changes, close to zero. The next hurdle, however, will be the debt ceiling negotiations. Unless Congress raises the current maximum that the United States government can have as debt, sometime in the next few months, the government will be forced to default on some of its obligations. And that would be horrific. The problem is that some lawmakers are insisting that government spending be decreased as part of the agreement to raise that debt limit. And doing that will be very difficult because Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, and the military account for the overwhelming majority of federal expenditures. And all of these programs are very popular and politically touching them and reducing the benefits derived from them 
will be next to impossible. And the problems for the government are going to be made worse as high interest rates that are currently in place and the high borrowing costs the government will experience make the cost of running the government that much higher. At any age of the problem, we have Social Security that's also predicted to run out of money, in this case in 2033. And added dollars will, by necessity, need to be put there even before added Medicare funding is contemplating. Jeremy, putting all the pieces together, unless Congress authorizes more spending using tax dollars, the Medicare trust fund will run out of dollars somewhere around 2031. And when that happens, Medicare will only be able to spend what it collects, or 11% less than it spends today, and 19% less than it's likely to spend or would otherwise spend in 2047. These cutbacks will dramatically disrupt the program as we know it. They'll drive down doctor and hospital payments, potentially to a level where providers refuse to accept the insurance, similar to today when they refuse to accept Medicaid. Or alternatively, they could raise the age of qualification or diminish the benefits for what is covered. President Biden's hoping to address the problem by taxing people earning above $400,000 a year and reducing what Medicare pays for some of the most expensive and exorbitantly priced drugs. Both of these proposals will need congressional approval, including 60 votes in the Senate in order to avoid a filibuster. I'm not quite sure where it's gonna go. I suspect we're gonna continue to drag our feet until the crisis hits us, and then some type of dramatic action will be required. Jeremy, next week I'll be moderating a discussion on the future of American healthcare at the Stanford University Graduate Schools of Medicine and Business. There'll be two guests on the panel, one who believes the government should have an expanded role in improving healthcare in the United States, and the second who feels that the government's current role needs to be reduced and healthcare turned over to private business. In many ways, I see this as being analogous to questions about regulation versus deregulation in dozens of industries. Is the government friend or foe? As both an historian and business owner, where do you think the pendulum should land? Robbie, I'm usually a fan of small federal government as few regulations as possible. I see the need for government regulations in many aspects of healthcare, but I also see the lobbying power the healthcare industry wields in America. The government has had plenty of time to drive real change in healthcare and has really not made much of a difference. For every positive change they make, it feels like we take two steps back. For every government change around reducing drug prices or expanding access to care, we see uh, we continue to see insurance premiums increase higher deductibles and increased out-of-pocket costs for healthcare consumers. The average American does not have $5,000 or more just sitting in the bank for an unexpected health emergency. Even if they had health insurance, they're functionally uninsured. So they avoid going to the doctor unless they absolutely have to, oftentimes neglecting health issues that would be easy to solve if they caught it early enough until they become major life-threatening health issues. We need to move away from the sick care model that the current healthcare industry thrives on and move to a more affordable preventative care model. The government has had all of the chances in the world to drive this change, and they have not. It's time for them to step aside and let the private sector do what it does best, innovate and drive change. 
Robbie, let's shift to a different topic. With all the changes in abortion restrictions impacting states, what has been the impact on physicians? Jeremy, as you imply, these restrictions on a woman's right to an abortion have made it increasingly difficult for physicians to provide medical care, particularly those in OBGYN. Many of the procedures and drugs used to terminate a pregnancy are identical to ones that women need who experience a miscarriage, which is a very common complication of pregnancy. These procedures and drugs are essential to help these women avoid infection and stop hemorrhage after a miscarriage. But doctors worry that the extreme penalties legislated for abortions could be imposed on them under the assumption that the procedures and drugs were being used to terminate a pregnancy rather than treat a woman with a miscarriage. Remember, in places like Texas, any citizen can bring charges against a doctor as such physicians find themselves in a lose-lose situation. New data from the recent residency match indicate that graduating medical students are avoiding programs in these states and refuse to work there after their training is complete. The current predictions are that getting medical care for women in these geographies will become progressively difficult and in many locations, impossible. Given as we discussed in the last episode of Medicine the Truth, that the US already has the worst paternal mortality of the world's wealthiest nations, this will be disastrous. In total, following the Supreme Court ruling and the state-imposed restrictions, total residency applications at OBGYN decreased over 10% in states with bans on abortion, and that has resulted in a 5% overall reduction nationally in physicians interested in getting into OBGYN. In fact, there's now a new term. It's maternity deserts. These are entire counties in which access to maternity healthcare services are either severely limited or completely absent. We keep hearing from people about the controversial new Alzheimer's drug that the FDA approved, which we discussed on previous episodes of Medicine the Truth. What's the newest update? Jeremy, as we indicated in previous episodes, these drugs, despite the hype around them, have minimal clinical value. In fact, the newest research indicates they probably have no net benefit. Although as we pointed out in a recent podcast, one of the two FDA authorized medications has been shown to show a slight slowing in memory. The Institute for Clinical and Economic Review recently pointed out that once the calculation includes the high danger from swelling of the brain and intracranial bleeding, the downsides bring the net benefit to zero. Alzheimer's is a terrible disease, and it now impacts 6 million Americans. But as bad as no hope may seem, I believe false hope is equally bad, if not worse. If I had a loved one with this terrible disease, given the totality of the data that exists, I wouldn't want them to be treated. In your recent monthly musings, you mentioned that Black women are twice as likely to die when giving birth than white women, even after correcting for socioeconomic factors. Is there more information on racial disparities in healthcare this month? Jeremy, the problem of racism in medicine is massive. And as a nation, we're making little progress. In fact, each new study shines an ever brighter light on the magnitude and breadth of racism in American healthcare. In a particularly worrisome article, in the Journal of the AMA Health Forum, researchers found that pregnant Black patients 
were subjected to drug testing more often than white patients, even though the results of these tests ended up showing that black mothers were less, not more likely to test positive. Among those women who did not have a history of drug use, black patients were tested one and a half times more frequently than white patients. And for individuals with a positive drug history, black women were tested 76% of the time, while white women were tested only 68% of the time. And given that in many states, a positive drug test while pregnant must be reported to state child welfare agencies, the negative implications and consequences for black individuals and their families are clear. The racist implications of the findings are undeniable. Robbie, now with COVID-19 winding down, what's happening to people's isolation and loneliness? Jeremy, this is one area in which there's some good news. When people are asked whether they experience loneliness, quotes, a lot of the day yesterday, the percentage of adults reporting that they had declined recently in the most recent Gallup poll from a high of 25% during the pandemic to 17% currently. And a particularly positive finding was that there was a steep decline in loneliness among seniors, people aged 65 and over. During COVID, older individuals, as you remember, they were at the highest risk for hospitalization and death. As such, they were forced to socially isolate more intensely and longer than younger individuals. We know that isolation produces major medical and psychological problems for people. Unfortunately, among younger individuals, Loneliness remains a massive problem, and it appears to be continuing at an unacceptable and unhealthy rate despite the end of COVID. Even as COVID-19 recedes, the health consequences of the pandemic will continue for decades and most likely for generations. Loneliness seems now to become a very common experience for people in the post-COVID world. Robbie, listeners are confused about the various court rulings relative to one of the pills used to end pregnancy. Can you help them? I should begin, Jeremy, by pointing out that we are recording this podcast on Friday, April the 21st, hours before the Supreme Court is about to opine on this question. As such, when listeners hear it on Tuesday evening, much more will be known. But based on what has happened so far, I understand why listeners are confused. Different courts in various states have reached contradictory conclusions. And ultimately, whatever is announced today, the entire issue will still have to come back to the courts and once again, most likely be decided by the Supreme Court sometime in the future. In short, for women in their first trimester of pregnancy who want to terminate their pregnancy, there are two methods. The first is a surgical procedure the one that had been protected by Roe versus Wade, but was reversed by the Supreme Court earlier this year. And a second one that involves a woman being prescribed two medications to induce a miscarriage. And up to this point, about half of the pregnancies were terminated with a surgical procedure, and about half with the medications. Although only one drug is essential to the process, there's a second medication Bufupristone, that facilitates the process, significantly reducing the pain and the risks for the mom. And this medication, the second one, that currently is controversial. 
a Texas federal judge who is known for his anti-abortion views, ruled that when the FDA 21 years ago made the decision to approve this medication, it hadn't done the appropriate research on its safety. And that's despite two decades of extensive use in which the drug has been shown to be extremely safe for women. Subsequent to that ruling, judges in two other states disagreed with the first ruling, although one of the two said that restrictions should be in place, but cut in half the number of weeks that the drug could be taken and banned virtual prescribing as an intermediate step. And because these rulings are about the medication itself and the FDA process, not only would the restrictions apply to women in states where abortion is banned, but it will apply to women in every state. The courts today are expected to decide whether the rules that have been in place for 21 years should remain in place until the case itself is heard and decided, or whether most likely this intermediate restriction in the rules should apply until that time. But if the ultimate decision, once the case comes to the courts, and as I say, most likely gets to the Supreme Court, is to overrule the FDA's judgment, it not only would impact pregnant women, but it would open the door for courts to upend any and all FDA decisions about medications, potentially making vaccines and other politically contentious drugs illegal. As you can tell, Jeremy, the implications are massive. And I question why courts without medical expertise should be trying to make determinations about drug safety rather than scientists and clinical experts. In the Supreme Court ruling that was done that reversed Roe versus Wade, several of the judges made the point that even though they were eliminating the constitutional protection, they weren't banning abortion. They were just leaving it to the discretion of the states. If the Texas ruling ultimately is upheld, this would have national consequences and make abortion essentially impossible for much of the nation. As we noted earlier in the podcast, it would impose a huge threat and hardship to the lives of women who are already grieving after miscarriage, and now they find themselves unable to receive the appropriate medical care required. I'm sure we're going to return to the legal proceedings of this case in future Medicine the Truth episodes. What else is new in healthcare news? Jeremy, our country has a growing problem with sexually transmitted diseases. The total number of new cases of gonorrhea, syphilis, and chlamydia, the total cases are soaring, dramatically higher than before the pandemic. In fact, the prevalence of syphilis, it's now at the highest level in 70 years. And we're facing new strains of gonorrhea that are proving to be resistant to all the currently available antibiotics. And syphilis among newborns, that's gone up 200%. The only encouraging news when it comes to these sexually transmitted diseases is a study that was published in the England Journal of Medicine that showed that taking a well-established antibiotic, doxycycline, the day after having sex can prevent STD transmission, similar to how the morning after pill taken the day after intercourse can prevent pregnancy. Robbie, any final thoughts? 
Jeremy, in our episodes of the conglomerate of monopolies, we've talked about how the different sectors of healthcare, hospitals, clinicians, drug companies, insurers, are gaining market control and jacking up prices. And we focused on several areas on these providers of medical care that have used surprise billing to maximize revenue and force payment. Now several of these segments of the healthcare industry are taking a page out of the airline industry playbook and finding various add-on fees on top of the underlying price of the treatment itself to augment revenue. A surprise building becomes more difficult and less remunerative following congressional package of legislation to limit it. Hospitals are figuring out ways to charge so-called facility fees whenever patients get laboratory tests, radiologic studies, and outpatient procedures. And hospitals are even charging facility fees for telemedicine visits on top of what the doctor charges for the medical care itself, even when the physician providing the expertise isn't anywhere near the hospital, but is still in that, that individual's home. Hospitals offend this billing practice by saying they don't get paid enough to cover all their costs, and this charge is needed to keep them viable. But for patients, the added fee is just an additional out-of-pocket expense. In a prior episode, we discussed the issue of site neutrality. We pointed out that for many services, including outpatient doctor visits, hospitals get paid significantly more than community-based physicians who provide the exact same services. And hospitals charge this fee even when the doctor's office, although owned by the hospital, is located miles away from the inpatient facility. The model for American medical care, it's broken. Hospitals are failing financially because they're inefficient and as a result, high cost. Payers refuse to reimburse for the added expense and patients are forced to make up the difference, making healthcare the single highest source of bankruptcy in the United States. The beauty of capitalism when it works is that it drives competition, rewards innovation, and provides more value and lower costs to consumers. The ugliness of capitalism is when it allows individuals and industries to leverage their power to take advantage of people. Increasingly, hospitals have moved from being the protectors of patients to taking advantage of the vulnerability. And the most recent data show that this happens as often in not-for-profit hospitals as for for-profit ones. As long as reimbursement stays fee-for-service, ever higher prices will be the primary strategy hospitals use. When Medicare introduced diagnostic-related grouping, or DRGs, as the model of payment to hospitals, giving them a single fee rather than basing it on the number of days that the patient stays inside the facility, policy experts hoped that it would have led to greater efficiency. Rather than finding better and more efficient ways to provide care, hospitals have used market consolidation to raise prices, and they now charge and receive two to two and a half times more dollars from employers and businesses for the care provided to employees than what the government unilaterally decides to reimburse through Medicare. What we're seeing now is that as the squeeze is getting tighter for hospitals, and as businesses are saying that they can't make up the difference, 
patients are being put into the middle. I hope that at some point our nation will realize that the current fee-for-service model can't work and will move to capitation at the delivery system level, meaning doctors and hospitals will be paid in advance based upon the severity of problems that patients have and the incentives will align for prevention, avoidance of complications from chronic disease, patient safety. I can guarantee that doing so will transform the healthcare system for the better. But one thing's for sure, if hospitals don't embrace change, someone will figure out a way to completely disrupt their model. Jeremy, you see what always happens to inefficient companies that fail to make improvements that the customers desire in the business world. I think this is about to happen in medicine. Most likely the process of change will be led by the retail giants, Amazon, CVS, Walmart. They'll implement approaches to medical care delivery that achieve the best outcomes in more affordable ways. And they won't focus on narrow areas of healthcare, but already we're seeing them acquire all the pieces needed to replace independent insurers, doctors, and hospitals. Time's running out for healthcare professionals inside the current medical system. Hopefully they'll awaken and drive real change before it's too late. As a reminder to listeners, this episode is available on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com, and on all podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and share it with your friends and family. To submit a question or comment to the host, please visit the contact page on our website or send us a message on Twitter, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Thank you for listening to Fixing Healthcare, and have a great day.